Greetings in Jesus' name. I am Bishop Chester Wright, and this is Call to War 2020, Directive Number 5. Uh, this is going to be uh, a great challenge today for me as the uh, conduit and for you as the recipient of what God is saying. Uh, not because it's negative in the sense that it's uh, talking about us directly, but today's subject is Satan's Tactics and Methods of Warfare. Uh, so the idea is to understand how he fights against us. What are, what are what is his strategy? What is his what are his tactics? What are his methods? Uh, because we cannot endure spiritually if we are ignorant of his devices. Scripturally, it is the will of God for us to know and understand and be able to discern the workings of Satan. I'm reading to you a verse that we have used many times, and we have used it from a King James perspective, but you will permit me, I will point out uh, the literal message of the verse. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 1 says, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I would not have you ignorant. You know that ye were Gentiles carried away unto these dumb idols, even as ye were led. And he didn't say, didn't use the word dumb from the perspective of lacking mental capacity, but an idol cannot speak. And of course, God communicates with us first and foremost by speaking to us. And verse 3 says, Wherefore I give you to understand that no man speaking by the Spirit of God calleth Jesus accursed, and that no man can say that Jesus is Lord, but by the Holy Ghost. But if we go back to verse 1, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I would not that ye... It would not have you ignorant. If you have a King James Bible, and I just quoted from the King James, some of the online versions are not faithful to the original King James because they don't include the italicized words as in italics. So if you're reading an online version of uh, the King James and those words that the, the translators ita- ita- italicized, uh, then you're not getting the picture that the translators wanted us to get. And the uh, the purpose of italicized words is not for emphasis. It was a device of the translators in their integrity to let you know that they had added words to the translation that there were not Greek words that were being translated. So if you... Even if you're not a Greek scholar, if you have uh, what I consider to be very indispensable, and that is a King James interlinear Greek New Testament, you can easily say, see for yourself, that there is no Greek word in 
1 Corinthians chapter 12, translated, verse 1, translated gifts. Now, I'm assuming that because the translators knew that the rest of this, uh, or, or much of the rest of chapter 12 is speaking about spiritual gifts, uh, that they added the word there because in their intellectual understanding, that's what goes there. But if you have an, uh, an Englishman concordance, and in my personal uh, Bible study app uh, software on, that I use that's cross-platform between my phone and my iPad and my laptop and my desktop, uh, in that cross-platform, uh, they, the, uh, uh, it's easy to see and check that that word gifts is not there. It's not there. So when you check that and using the tools, uh, in my Bible software, there is not an Englishman's concordance as identified as Englishman's concordance, but I use Olive Tree, uh, uh, Bible software, and whenever you uh, click, I have King James uh, Version with Strong's, so that when you hover the mouse over or you tap it with your finger on your phone or your iPad, uh, it brings up the the, uh, the uh, Greek definition. And in Olive Tree, every definition that comes up has, in the King James, or in the Greek, has both Strong's and Thayer's together, even though it doesn't identify Thayer's as the bottom part of that definition, they let you know in the the beginning of all of that, that that is Thayer's Greek lexicon. But in the very bottom of that little window that comes up, you can look up that word, how it's used in the in the Greek. Well, that's simply Englishman's Greek concordance where a regular concordance takes the English word and shows you every verse that's got that English word in it, but a a, a uh, uh, Englishman's concordance using Strong's uh, uh, numbers, it will bring up every verse that has that Greek word in it, no matter how it's translated. And it is a simple test to see that the word translated spiritual in 1 Corinthians 12 and 1, is never used of spiritual gifts unless it is connected with the Greek word translated gifts, which is charisma. So spiritual gifts are this Greek word, which I can't pronounce, pneumatikos, uh, and that's not the pronunciation, but that's my, my best attempt. Pneumatikos, charisma, is spiritual gifts. Some places only have the word charisma, gifts, some verses. Some verses have both of them. But in some places where the word uh, pneumatikos is used, there's no reference to gifts. In fact, it can be translated simply as regarding someone being spiritual. And the, this Greek word spiritual According to Strong's means non-carnal. Humanly ethereal as opposed to, uh, gro- opposed to gross, whatever that means, uh, or demonical, de- demonically a spirit, concretely or divinely supernatural. Thayer says that the word means, 
uh, and I'm only going to read a portion of these just for time's sake, belonging to a spirit or a higher than man, but in, uh, or, or a being higher than man, but inferior to God. So this word can refer to spirits, both angels or demons, but it also can be used in reference to God at, as in his, uh, being as spirit, and it's also used of those who have given themselves over to God or and are called spiritual, and Thayer's defines being spiritual as one who is filled with and governed by the Spirit of God. So Paul said, I would not I, I would not have you to be ignorant concerning spiritual things, concerning the supernatural. Because if we're ignorant of the supernatural, we're ignorant of God. You can't know God except supernaturally. Impossible. And so much of Christianity, including uh, oneness believers, have consciously or subconsciously excluded the supernatural from their lives and from their church services because they don't want to get off in some some strange stuff. Well, a man of God said back in 1973 in a meeting I was in, because back then, even spiritual gifts, tongues and interpretation operating in apostolic churches was greatly frowned on. And if you did that, you were looked at with great suspicion. Trust me, been there, done that, got the, not the t-shirt, but the stars to prove it. And so, the, our solution was, don't accept any of it. And this man of God says the solution to improper use is not disuse, it's proper use. So the solution to fanaticism when it comes to spiritual things is not denying all spiritual things and distancing yourself from the supernatural. The solution is to go back to the Bible and let the and let the Spirit of God and the Word of God teach us about the supernatural so that we are we don't become victims of something we're trying to deny exists. Because if God can't communicate with you and deal with you supernaturally, then God's not communicating with you or dealing with you at all. Because it's the only way he deals with us. Directly. So, uh, the word ignorant here, Paul said, I would not have you to be ignorant of, uh, of, uh, of, of these spiritual things. Uh, Strong says the word means not to know through lack, through lack of information or intelligence or by implication to ignore through disinclination. And the English word disinclination means a preference for avoiding something, the absence of inclination or reluctance, unwillingness, a dislike or dislike or lack of desire, aversion, reluctance, the feeling of being unwilling to do something, or in this case, unwilling to know something. So ignorance is spiritual ignorance. Because God is no respecter of persons. And knowing God doesn't have to do with intellectual capacity. 
It has to do with spiritually being surrendered to and in tune with God. Because there are great intellects that don't know anything about God. And there are some relatively simple-minded people, whatever that means. And I'm not trying to be uh, uh, unkind to anybody. But they know a lot about God. Because Jesus said, Father, I thank thee that you've hidden these things from the wise and prudent and revealed them unto babes. Study all you want. But everything you learn about God intellectually is unreliable because he hides things from those that are pursuing them with their own intellect and by their own wisdom. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1 that by the wisdom of God, God has determined that man by wisdom can't find God. God's not going to let you and I find him intellectually. Why? Because Paul, no, excuse me, yeah, Paul in on, on Mars Hill preached that the way we find God is we feel after him and so that we might find him because he's not far from any one of us. And the only way God can be no respecter of persons is that you cannot and do not find God by your human intellect. Because if you can, then he became a respecter of persons because he apparently gave some more intellectual ability than others. And so if finding him is based on intellectual ability and capacity, then he is a respecter of persons, and he is not. Now, I have to admit to you, I don't know this by experience, but I've been around people that were very, very intelligent. And I find, I have watched how hard it was for them to surrender their intellect to God and approach him like a little child. Except you be converted and become as little children, you can't enter the kingdom of God. Because those that aren't coming as little children want God to defend himself and explain himself to them so that they can be convinced that he's worthy to be trusted and then they simply do that. But That's not true with a child or your child. Babies are born trusting because if they don't trust, they don't live. We have to be taught not to trust by experience, by people letting us down. And so to choose to be ignorant of God and trust him, he said, if you ask for bread, will I give you a stone? If you ask for uh, 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 fish, will I give you a serpent? If you ask for an egg, will I give you a scorpion? If ye being evil know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more would your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? Or let me go a little bit farther with it. How much more will your heavenly Father give true and faithful and dependable spiritual things and knowledge of those things? So when I don't trust the supernatural, I don't trust God. And I don't trust his love. And I don't trust his office as a father. When I've got leeriness and weirdness and all that, and I don't trust anything I can't see, taste, touch, feel, and understand with my own mind. Well, you got a problem, and I do too. We're never going to understand God with our minds. He only gives us a portion, and we will never have all of that understanding until we get to heaven. 
Now, I'm dwelling on this right now. There's a whole lot to get into. But this is the foundation. And everything else I've got to say today that the Holy Ghost wants to say, it will become very negative to you if you don't hear this. If you don't get this. The Bible in basic English translates 1 Corinthians 12.1 literally from the Greek. And about the things of the Spirit, my brothers, it is not right for you to be without teaching or knowledge, understanding. Darby's translation says, but, 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 but concerning spiritual. And then in brackets, he honest, in honesty, he adds manifestations. Brethren, I do not wish you to be ignorant. Now the word for gifts is charisma, and it's a divine gratuity. It's a deliverance from danger or passion, especially a spiritual endowment, uh, or objectively miraculous faculty. And uh, the way we normally use it is only the fifth out of five definitions that Thayer's has on the word. Gifts or grace denoting extraordinary powers, distinguishing certain Christians and enabling them to serve the church of Christ, the reception of which is due to the power of divine grace operating on their souls by the Holy Spirit. Well, that becomes pretty straightforward when you understand that the suffix M-A at the end of any Greek word is the results of. And so what is the word that the suffix is added to? Charis. And what is the word charis? Grace. So charisma that we call spiritual gifts are only the operation of the grace of God in our lives through each one of us differently and individually to contribute to the whole, the ministry of the whole. That's why nobody with a gift from God uses it to glorify themselves without bringing great judgment on themselves eventually. And God keeps an account. Oh yeah, there is an account for every one of us on God's books. And it's meticulously kept. And thank God for the blood. That's the only thing that can wash stuff out of that, that, that account of my life and your life. So Paul says this, and this is where I, I, I need to start today because it's the one most of us deal with the most. That uh, I'm talking about Christians. This is the one he uses on us first and foremost in our lives. And he tries to sneak up with us on this one and do whatever. So listen to what Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning with verse 10. To whom ye forgive anything, I forgive also. For if I forgave anything to whom I forgave it, for your, for your sakes forgave, forgave I it in the person of Christ, lest Satan should gain an advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. The number one device he uses against mankind is not what people do to us they shouldn't, it's not what they say about us they shouldn't say. It's not what they should say they never say. Or what they should do they didn't do. It's how his thought, the thoughts that he puts in our mind about those things that causes us to have offenses. 
People's actions and words can hurt. Hurts are not offenses. And if I have a wound, I'm going to be careful with that wound and protective of it. That doesn't mean I am I have a problem with a person that may not know I have that wound and is trying uh, trying to keep them from touching that. But an offense is different. Now I have feelings against God or those people or myself for causing this wound. And so I'm protecting myself against anyone touching the wound, even though that person, I may never see them again. And where do, where does that come from? Satan is the one that talks to us and gives us wrong perceptions about things. And let me tell you how that happens. Jeremiah 17 says, I don't know my own heart. Jeremiah 17 says, you don't know your heart. And yet, almost all offenses are the product of him putting thoughts in my mind, accusing the motive of what people have done or said or not done or not said. It's the, it's the perception of their motive that is negative. Now, I am not saying that God cannot reveal to us somebody's motive. But why would he reveal somebody else's heart to us before he first reveals our own heart to us? And how can it be a test if he's revealing somebody's motive to us? And it's always a test. Why? Because do you know anything else that Jesus tied directly to our forgiveness? I don't know anything else that he tied directly to my forgiveness. There's no other sin that I may or may not, or may or may have or may commit that is directly tied to my forgiveness of all other sins. Except offenses. And we call it all kinds of different things. Offenses, grudges, bitterness. Uh, I just don't like that person anymore. I don't want to be around that person anymore. I don't trust that person anymore. Call it whatever you want. Yeah. And <laughs> because of that, because that is so tied to me receiving forgiveness for my sins, God's not going to reveal somebody else's motive to, for you, to you till after you've passed the test. You've got to pass the test of forgiving them first, no matter what you think their motive is, before he will forgive you. And then he may or may not reveal to you what their motive was and what they said or did or what they didn't say or didn't do. Why? Because he's not going to bargain with you to get you to forgive them. He's not going to do it. Why? Because how can I ask him to forgive me of stuff I don't deserve being forgiven for? If I can't pass the test of forgiving others by his grace through his blood. And so this is, this is the one thing that causes more people to fail than any, anything else. Why? 
Because it's not just the unforgiveness that's the problem and the fact that your sins are not forgiven. But this opens the door for everything else. When Paul said, lest Satan should get an advantage of this. Paul was very knowledgeable when it comes to athletics. He was constantly using references to either athletics or war or both. And in this particular case, the same one that wrote, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. In this case, he's speaking of wrestling when he says advantage. Because in wrestling, even from ancient times, there are three periods. The first period, the two uh, uh, opponents start off standing up. But after that, then there's some kind of coin flip or whatever, and the person that wins the coin gets to choose up or down. And what that means is, if you're down, you have to get on on your hands and knees, on all, on, on your hands and knees, and your opponent, or if the your opponent is down, the other wrestler gets to come up from behind the person on the ground, and they get to take the elbow in one hand, and they get to put the other arm around the middle of that person so that they start out in control, and that's called the advantage. My unforgiveness, your unforgiveness, gives Satan the advantage over us in all that's about to follow in this lesson. Well, why should, why didn't God prevent offense? No. Jesus specifically said, offenses must come, but woe be unto the one who offends. Woe. And so, God doesn't cause the offense, but he allows it, and he doesn't explain it. All as a test. Because if I cannot forgive the undeserving by his grace, through his blood, he already paid the price. The same, same blood that was shed for my forgiveness was shed for the, the offenses of those against me. The same blood that allows him to forgive me of my offenses toward him is the same blood he shed for, that is the basis for my forgiveness against those who offend me. Right or wrong, good or bad, no matter whether they meant to or didn't mean to. Forgive. Now, forgiveness doesn't mean your wound is immediately healed. It doesn't mean that your, uh, your, your tenderness, your pain is gone. It just means you're not letting the food, the wound get infected while it heals. Being hurt's one thing, but that becoming something you use against other people. That's a different thing altogether. So Paul said, we're supposed to forgive, and I paraphrased all of verse 10 in that statement, lest Satan should get an advantage of, of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. So, before I get into the specifics, this isn't the same as yesterday's directive, directive number four, but it is a parallel to it, and 
taking from that and going farther forward. Satan's number one goal is to blind and bind to make our souls his captive. And how does he make us captives? He brings us into captivity through subtle deception. How does Satan deceive people? And how is he so effective at deceiving people? And why are we so vulnerable to his deception? Here's the truth of it. He tells us what we want to hear to get us to do what he wants us to do. He has no power to make us do anything. So if he tells us what we want to hear, then we are prone to accept what he wants us to do because this has got to be right. This is what I want to hear. But when I give in and do what he tells me to do, I now am in obedience to him, and that makes me his captive. Paul said uh, in uh, 2 Timothy 2, verses 24 through 26, and I'm reading quickly, And the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient, in meekness instructing those that oppose themselves, if God preventure will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth, and that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil who are taken captive by him at his will. The Amplified reads this way, And the servant of the Lord must not be quarrelsome, fighting and contending. Instead, he must be kindly uh, must be kindly to everyone in mild-tempered uh, brackets, preserve, preserving the bond of peace. He must be a skilled and suitable teacher, patient and forbearing, and willing to suffer wrong. He must correct his opponents with courtesy and gentleness in the hope that God may grant that they will repent and come to know the truth, that they will perceive and recognize and become accurately acquainted with and acknowledge it. Now, sometimes, no matter how gentle you are, people still take it as rejection of them. No matter how kind you're trying to be, just in pointing out that you don't agree with this or whatever, they take that as offense. Verse 26, and that they may come to their senses and escape out of the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him, henceforth to do his will. And then Weiss Expanded Translation says this, and the Lord's bond slave must not be in the nature of the case quarrel, uh, in the case quarrel, but be gentle to all, skillful in teaching, forbearing, in meekness correcting those who set themselves in opposition. If perchance those who set themselves in opposition, if perchance God may grant them, sorry to read the same line again, uh, if perchance God may grant them re- uh, repentance resulting in a precise experiential knowledge of the truth and that they may return to soberness, and that's not from drunkenness, but from deception, out of the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him, returning to soberness so as to serve the will of the one God. And so this is our adversary. And, you know, this is a bunch of lessons instead of just a few moments of scripture. But I've got to lay this out before we go forward. We are called to war against the powers and abilities of Satan and their effects upon mankind. 
Revelation 22, 9 says, And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. And then he's cast out into the lake of fire. Revelation 20, verse 7, And when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison and shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. And then I read yesterday uh, the last directive, 2 Corinthians 4, verses 3 and 4, But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. And then here is his number one weapon specified. 2 Corinthians 10, 5, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalted itself against the knowledge of God. What are high things? Those are thoughts that we have that deny, disagree with, or challenge God. And bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Why? Because Satan does not have the authority to do things to us. Except God give him that authority. And he, God only does that for a period of time for certain things and that's limited. Or unless we give the devil authority by believing his words, even if we don't discern it's him, and doing what he says, that gives him power to do stuff to us by our permission. Faith is when I believe the words of God. Fear is when I believe the words of the devil. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2, three, four, two, two through 4. For I am jealous over you with godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband, and I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your minds should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he that cometh preacheth another Jesus, whom ye have not, whom we have not preached, or if ye receive another spirit, which ye have not received, or another gospel, which ye have not accepted, ye might bear well with him. All of this through the subtlety. The subtlety of corrupting your minds, or my mind, or man's mind, through the thoughts from the devil. That's the only unrestricted power he has, is to put thoughts in your mind and my mind. And why would God allow that? Because this life is one test every moment of the day from beginning to end. Because this isn't heaven. And God has no intention of making this a place of heaven. We're strangers and pilgrims here. We're just passing through here. But in order to mold us and make us and shape us, the pressure that the fingers of the potter puts on that lump of clay spinning, spinning on his wheel. If you, if you feel like your life is spinning out of control and you're feeling pressure in these points, those are the fingers of God as circumstances spin out of control in your life while he uses that situation to mold us and make us into what he's designed for us to be. 
He can't do that when we're a lump of clay out in the ground. He can't do that after we've dried out and hardened. Can't do it. Second Thessalonians 2 verse 8. Then that wicked shall be revealed whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. Even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish because they receive not the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this cause, God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie. It's, it's, uh, not loving truth. Next first step. Being deceived. Second step. And then so completely giving yourself to the deception that you're now open to a delusion and there's no way back from the delusion. And for this cause, God shall send them strong delusion. God doesn't do it, but it, he is accredited as sending it because he gives permission for the adversary to have us because we give ourselves up to him by believing his lies. And God says, Three times in Romans 1, God gave up, gave them up, gave them over. Three times until it was a done deal. He gave them over to this, then he gave them over to this, and finally he gave up on them and gave them completely over to a mind that no longer worked as God had designed it from a place of being able to understand right and wrong and being able to repent of sins and give ourselves to God. Finally, 1 Peter 5 verse 8 says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil as a roaring lion walketh about, seeking whom he may devour, whom resist steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. In other words, this battle in your mind with the thoughts of Satan is common to every man because it's God's way of letting us determine which side of the fence we're on. Do we believe him? Are we steadfast in the faith? And what is faith? Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word or rhema of God. So if I'm not steadfast in the faith, whose words am I believing? Praise God. Now, this next verse we're going to look at, we're going to look at at what Satan does from the perspective of God already having given us the means whereby we can defeat it. So there are three primary methods of attack. In fact, everything the devil does is comes under the banner of one of these three methods. Luke 10, 19, King James says, Behold, I give you power, but the Greek word there is not dunamis, it's exousia, which is authority. To tread on, which is a military attacking term. To tread on. One uh, Greek scholar I read said it means to, to stomp contempt, contemptuously upon. To tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, colon, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Because of that colon there, supplied by the translators, they're telling us that they They understood from the Greek and their knowledge of Greek language that the statement and nothing shall by any means hurt you applies to those that are using the authority that God has given them to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all 
the power of the enemy. So what are serpents? Serpents are those subtle deceptions. And what are scorpions? They are stinging accusations. And what is the power of the enemy? It is his attempt to cause us to be afraid and be intimidated. When Paul said, God has not given us the spirit of fear, it's not the Greek word phobos there. It's the Greek word that's translated timidity. And it's the only time it's in the Greek New Testament. God has not given us the spirit of timidity. Who has timidity? Those that are intimidated. What are they intimidated by? Fear of failure, fear of rejection. So Satan gets us so wrapped up in pleasing people and his threats that we become intimidated. We fear and we become his captives. We've been given authority over all of these devices, but we have to use it. The promise that nothing shall by any means hurt us is only promised to those who are actively using the authority of God to tread on all the subtle deception of Satan, to tread on all the stinging accusations, to tread on all of his efforts to get us to be fearful and intimidated. Otherwise, we're going to be hurt. So, as we proceed on, I'm going to say this again. I've already said it, but I'm going to, I want to hammer it right here. Satan's number one weapon against mankind is words. That's it. He has permission and authority to do nothing else to us except words. The only way he ever has power or authority to do anything else against us, to us, etc., is either God gives him permission, like he did with Job, for specified things, for a specified period of time, for a specified, to a specified degree. And that's always allowed by God for our, our growth, for our proving, for our strengthening, for, for, so that we can know our own heart. So we're put in situations, we think we're doing fine, and then we're put in situations that all of a sudden we react, and we go, okay, Lord, thank you for showing me that. Because he could not deal with Job without Job experiencing those things. The only other way Satan has power to do anything more than put words in our minds is if we believe what he says and act on that or become fearful because of what he says. And we have just given him unlimited, unrestricted power to whatever degree that God will or won't let him use that. Now, thankfully, the Lord steps in uh, and won't let him go too far. But it won't, won't be because we've restricted him. Because when you give, you and I fear Satan, we fear because of his words. When you and I uh, do what he says because we didn't discern it was him, those things give him permission to act. So, uh, just for the next little while, I don't know how long that little while is going to be. It all depends on how much you want to hear about what the Word of God says about how Satan comes against us. So if you don't want to hear it, 
it might be time to turn this off because I'm not stopping today until I am released from the flow of the Holy Ghost in communicating this. Because my hope is if you decide you can't take it now or you're not able to stay with me until I'm done, that you will, it will matter enough to you and your own salvation will matter enough to you that you'll come back and listen to it again. And let me say this right here. I have never, ever presented myself as the person who has exhaustive knowledge of God or any other subject. My, my purpose in being a conduit that I know God has given me is to sow seeds of word, of the word of God, that the hope is, God's hope and mine too, is that you will take these seeds and do your own study and between you and God, let him take those seeds and allow and cause them to germinate and grow up in you and produce fruit in your life. And the goal is that by the time you're fruitful, you won't, that whole process has been completed you won't even remember who sowed the seed. Because sowing the seed is just obeying God as a conduit. Doesn't earn me anything from you or him. It doesn't does I don't deserve anything from that. I'm doing this because, first of all, I believe God and I fear God, and this is what He requires people of God and ministers of the gospel to do. Is to say what He wants to say, how He wants to say it. Period, as his conduit. And so that's what I'm trying to do. But what I'm going to be doing today in the next little while, I, as I was listening to the Lord, putting these notes together and adding some stuff, taking it out as I, uh, t- t- seeking for that peace that lets me know, okay, I've got what he's wanting to say, no more, no less. I thought, wow, this would be an amazing video teaching series, except I would have to do it in about five or six parts, and each one of those parts would have uh, four, five, six, ten lessons to each to a, a part to get this taught in 30-minute segments to the depth that is of what I know right now, not counting the, the infinite depth of what God has to say about the subject. And so you understand that all I'm doing today is hitting some high points and sowing some seed that I am trusting God that you will be responsible to him for and at least go back to the Bible like the Bereans did to see what's not being said or so. There's two kinds of people I fear. I fear those that take my words at face value and don't go check. That's no compliment to me or God. And I fear those that are going to disagree without checking. I don't fear them for me. I fear for you. The fear of God for you. Both of those are just as negative. And I've said this before and I'll say it again. (laughs) Woe be to the person that accepts anybody's word without going to the book to verify it. I don't care if it's your dad, your husband, your, your son, I don't care if it's your best friend. I don't care if it's the person you owe the most to in the entire world. Every one of us is nothing but a man, a human being, man, not gender. 
And because of that, God expects that we will go to the book and take what's said. You know, the sower sows the seed. But once that seed leaves his hand and falls on the ground, the sower has nothing to do with it. Now the soil is the one that decides what happened with that seed. And along with the rain that comes and the sunshine that comes, reacting in the soil on the seed causes that seed to germinate and begin to grow. And the only role that the the sower played was just casting the seed. And once that seed leaves his hand, he has no more accountability for it or power over it. I don't have the right to go hurriedly and collect the seed up off ground that proved to be harder than I thought it was. No, the birds of the air come and eat that seed as evidence in the judgment against that hard ground that didn't allow the Lord to break it up. So, Here we go. Let's start with the first interaction between Satan and man that we, that's recorded. The first one. It's in the garden. I talked about this a little bit yesterday. I'm going to try to hit some other points today that I didn't in the, uh, in the, uh, uh, directive yesterday, directive number four. They, these two are complementary. Uh, yesterday talked about Satan and dealing with the loss from the lost perspective. And today we're talking about dealing with the loss from Satan's perspective and seeing in our own souls how he comes against us and affects us. So notice what Satan, what, what Satan's uh, first approach was with man. And I've said this before and I'm going to say it again. I don't believe there was audible conversation going on. I don't believe if Adam walked up, he would have heard the conversation. Because that's not how Satan operates. He puts thoughts in our mind. And we may think we're just thinking out loud. I don't see any place where he identified himself. Satan certainly didn't. And I don't know that the serpent did. And he says to the woman, Yea, hath God said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden. The first thing he does is test our knowledge of God and what God said. And as soon as we prove, because she didn't know what God said, and you can read it, I'm not going to take the time to do it now. Uh, The first moment that he she proved that she didn't know what God actually said, he used her lack of the knowledge of the word of God, which he first probed to find out, and attacked God in her thinking. And then he attacked God's purpose. He attacked God's word uh, or or, or a declaration of what he was going to do. And then he also attacked God's motive. You're not going to die. God just doesn't want you to eat because he knows if you eat, you'll be like God's. Well, who was the first one to ever have that thought? Yeah, he wanted to be like God. So he knows, he knows being a an entity. Even though we're in flesh, lower than him, which he despises how low we are, whether you believe that or not. He's not afraid of us. He's afraid of the God in us, but only if the God in us has authority and control. 
So she saw that the, seat, the, the tree was good for food and it was pleasant to the eyes, the tree to be desired to make one wife. So she took the fruit there, ate it, and gave unto her husband. And as I quoted yesterday, I'm not going to read uh, uh, the encounter between uh, uh, God and man, but getting down to verse 10 says, uh, uh, where are you? Verse 10, uh, Adam said, I heard thy voice in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked. I hid myself. And God said, who told you you were naked? There you go right there. And this is Satan's pattern with every human being, saved and unsaved. He puts thoughts in our minds that we don't recognize are from him. He probes our knowledge of the word of God. When he finds out we don't have a defense against him because we don't know the word of God, then he begins to put thoughts of challenge and question in our minds about God. And then when he gets, gets us unsettled there, then he attacks God to us directly. He can't do that. He's not going to do that. He's such a God of love. He's not going to send people to hell. What a lie. That's a lie. But how many people today believe that? How many of us want to believe that? We want to believe that. Yeah. And whose power do we become under when we believe that? Not under the power of God. And then finally, in our self-deceived state, he, he demonstrates how kind he is versus mean God by offering us the world. He offers us the world. <laughs> and uh, again, First John 2, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life is not of the Father, but of the world. And the world passeth away, and the God of this world passes away. And the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. Praise God. Now, let's go into the things that Satan can do or does when he has permission. And I'm not going to read all this. There's a lot of scriptures here, but for time's sake, I'm going to trust that if you want to know, you'll go back and carefully look through chapters 1 and 2 of, of the book of Job so you can see the things I'm talking about here. Okay? So, somehow Satan had access to the throne room and when the angels of God gathered with God, Satan showed up too. So obviously there was some period of time that Satan still had access to the throne room, even though he was cast out under the earth when he lost the war in heaven. And so the, the Lord says in the presence of all the angels, where you been? Oh, going to and fro, you know, implying doing my normal stuff. And so God says, have you considered my servant Job? And Satan reveals something to us right here. No, I haven't been thinking about him. Why should I frustrate? I'm paraphrasing now. Why should I frustrate myself? You got a hedge around him and there's nothing I can do. Hello? So as long as Job obeyed God and the word of God, there was nothing that Satan could do unless... God saw things in Job that were not actions yet. They were not his ways yet. Job was perfect and upright in all his ways. 
But there were seeds of some things in him. And up front, those, there were, those two things were fear. Not fear for himself, but fear for his children. And so he was constantly offering sacrifice every time his kids got together in case they did something they shouldn't have done. Fear. Not faith. Fear. He admitted it. That which I've greatly feared has come upon me. But the other thing was, somewhere down inside there, Job got to feeling pretty good about himself without even realizing he did it. He began to share some of the credit for that. Well, he hadn't acted on that. He hadn't said anything like that. So it wasn't something God could do because Job wouldn't have received it. So he brings Job up to Satan and Satan says, you know, you, you, you won't let me touch him. You got a fence around him protecting him from me. So I don't even think about him. But if you gave me the shot, I'd prove to you he's only in this for what you're giving him. He's not serving you for nothing. And God said, really? Yeah. Just give me a chance. Okay. You can do this and this. You can't do this, this. That's it. Okay. So Satan leaves the presence of God and he goes and all of Job's possessions are stolen within a matter of hours of each other. Matter of hours. They're all taken. And then uh, when that happens, <laughs> before he can recover from losing all of his wealth, all the, what we would call the blessings of God, yeah, that's what man calls the blessings of God. All that wealth, it's gone. In a moment's time, almost. But before he can recover from that, a messenger comes and says there was a great wind from the wilderness, smote the four corners of the house where your seven sons and three daughters were, and it fell upon them, and they're all dead. And I alone am escaped alone to tell you. I only am escaped alone to tell you. Then the Bible says, Then Job rose, rent his mantle, shaved his head, and fell upon the, down upon the ground and worshipped. Was he hurting? Yes, he was hurting. But hurting is not accusing. Hurting is not being offended. And said, Naked came I in out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave, and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. Well, so another day, the angels of God are gathered around the throne. Here comes Satan again. And the Lord says, how's it going? Well, and Satan knew immediately what the Lord was talking about. Maybe the Lord was gloating a little bit. He said, well, you, uh, I want to bring up Job to you again. If you consider he's done like him in the whole earth, perking up right in all his way, and one fear of God is true of evil. And still he holdeth fast his integrity, although thou movest me against him to destroy him without cause. Now, we need to be hearing that. There are some things that happen to us that has no natural explanation to it. Especially if you're a child of God. 
So there's only a supernatural explanation. God has his purposes, but Satan took took him up on the challenge for his purposes. And so Satan says, you didn't let me go far enough. You let me touch his body. And uh, <laughs> I will, I'll prove to you that he, he will, he'll curse you. So the Lord said again, behold, he's in thine hand, but you can't take his life. Which proves that while Satan is the power of death, according to Hebrews chapter 2, he does not have the right to take a life until God says, okay. So the Lord doesn't kill people. He doesn't take life. But Satan can never take life of anybody's life without God's permission saying they've reached their appointment. And so we know the story. So Satan first came against Job's possessions, and then Satan came against Job's family. And now he's come against Job's health. Well, that didn't get it done. So now he comes against Job's marriage. And then finally, he uses Job's friends to test his relationship with God. Amen. And the only way we survive all of that is like Job survived the first two of those last three, according to uh, verse 9 of Job 2, Then said his wife unto him, Dost thou retain thine integrity, curse God, and die? But he said unto her, Thou speakest as one of the foolish women speaketh. What? Shall we receive good at the hand of God, and shall we not receive evil? So we're only going to let God give us good. If he gives us bad, we're going to be angry with him. He gives us stuff that we like, but when he lets stuff happen we don't like, we're bailing. That's exactly what Satan accused or Job of. He was only in it what he could get out of it from God. That's still the accusation, you see. That's still what he's trying to prove to God for every child of God, that we're only in it for what we can get out of it. Uh, is he winning that or is God winning that one? <sighs> Who's winning that one? Well, then Job's three friends show up. Now, you talk about friends. These are friends. The scripture says, verse 12, when they saw him afar off, they didn't even know him. They lifted up their voice and wept and rent everyone his mantle and sprinkled dust upon his head toward heaven because they were so grieved for their friend. And in verse 13, they sat down with him upon the ground seven days and seven nights and none spake a word unto him for they saw that his grief was very great. But then, somewhere in this, the adversary put thoughts in their mind that caused them to see the situation differently. God didn't let all this happen because he had any problem with Job. He didn't at all. He said Job was unlike anybody else on the earth, perfect upright in all of his ways. None like him in the whole earth. So none of this happened to Job because he had done something wrong. But his friends began to say, well, you're acting like this because of what you've done wrong. And that's where Job lost it. He began to defend himself, and God says, are you going to 
You're going to condemn me so you can be righteous? Well, then Job uh, repented in dust and ashes and begged for God's forgiveness. The scripture doesn't say he prayed for his friends. But God came to his friends and opened their eyes to see what they'd done. And he said to them, I'm not forgiving you till you go to Job and ask his forgiveness and he prays for you. Another test, just like the test that Joseph experienced in Egypt when his brothers who sold him into slavery came down to Egypt and wanted food and they didn't recognize him. And finally, when he revealed himself to them, he wept with them and said, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. So what happens when our own brothers, our own friends, our own family turn against us? What happens? What's our reaction to that? It's a test. Praise God. Time-wise, I need to move on, so here we go. Here is the way that Satan attacks your relationship and my relationship with God. It's what he did in the wilderness with attacking the faith of the Son of God. And we're sons of God, right? His attack against uh, Christ's trust in God's provision. You got power. Turn this stone into bread. You're hungry. He attacked Christ's trust in God's protection. He said he'd keep you. Let's see whether he will or not. Jump off this temple. And then he attacked Jesus' faith, or the man Christ Jesus' faith in God's plan for him. How? By offering him the kingdoms without having to go through the cross. By lowering the price of success. Took him up on a high mountain and in a moment showed him all the kingdoms of the world. And he said, all this is yours. All you have to do is acknowledge me. The word worship there literally in that context means to acknowledge me. Not become his devotee, but just acknowledge him that he's got all this. And, and yet you want all this. Well, of course it was all promised to him. All of the kingdoms of the world are promised to Christ. And according to the scripture, he's going to sit on the throne of David in Jerusalem, ruling over all the earth for a thousand years. That's the plan. Uh, but between then and the plan being fulfilled, there was a cross coming. He knew he was going to have to die. And it wasn't just dying that was the problem. He knew he was going to have to take all of our sins upon himself. And Satan said, you don't want to do all that. You don't want to, you don't want to go through all of that. Here, I have the power. And Jesus did not refute he had the power over them. Because all the authority over the kingdoms of the world was surrendered to him in the garden because all that dominion was given to man and man through sin forfeited it to the devil. And the devil in Luke, the, the, the Luke 4 version of that that uh, temptation on the mount uh, said 
Satan says, it was all delivered unto me. And the Greek word there literally means surrendered to me. Surrendered in meaning in a conflict. My opponent lost, I won. They had to give me what they had, which was dominion over the world. So all of these years, it grates Satan no end that the only power he's got on earth is the power he won in conflict with the first experience man had ever had with the adversary and didn't know anything about the adversary and was easily fooled into disobeying. And so he has had his own temper tantrum ever since that day because he has no more power and authority than was originally given to Adam. So he hates our guts. Believe what you want to believe, but he doesn't have even any remotely iota, not one iota of tenderness toward us. He hates us. He'd wipe every one of us out if he had the authority to do it. Because he wanted this earth for himself. He got kicked out of heaven. The earth was what he was cast down to. He assumed this was going to be his domain where he could play God. And then God wouldn't let him do that. And God proved that that wasn't the plan. And so Satan was going to show God by deceiving man and getting what God wouldn't have given him in his opinion as what was rightfully his. And so Christ was born, so he tried to kill him as a baby. And when he couldn't kill him, he tried to recruit him in the wilderness at the beginning of his ministry. And then at the end, he thought he had won. He bruised the woman's seed heel. But in three days, the one he thought he killed wasn't dead at all. He was resurrected from the dead and crushed his skull. And the only reason Satan is allowed to roam the earth today is because it's God's plan for him to be the one to help the Lord determine Who's on the Lord's side? Because Satan doesn't care if you do his will, just as you don't, as long as you don't do the will of God. He'll tell you what you want to hear. He'll promise to give you what you want to receive. He will prove he's a much better God than your God, my God, because he'll give us what we want. I have dealt with people who were in witchcraft and, uh, Eventually saw the truth got delivered because we were praying for them to see. And they told us. They became, they got involved with the occult because of what he promised them he would give them. Riches and fame and power. And he said, they said, he never really comes through on that. Of course he doesn't. He can't. But we are his captives. Once we obey him, once we fear him and obey him, we are his captives. How did Jesus overcome those temptations? Because he demonstrated he knew the word. Man didn't in the garden. Eve didn't know the word. And Adam didn't fear the word because he ate of the fruit. He didn't believe and fear the word because he ate of the fruit. Because he didn't want to be separated from his wife. And so whatever was going to happen, he just thought if he didn't sin or if he, if he wasn't deceived, 
he was just doing it because he wanted to keep his wife, that God would let the whole thing go. Well, that wasn't God's plan from the beginning. The Lord already had a plan for a substitutionary sacrifice. The coats of skin they put on. But here we are today. The same pattern has followed all the way down to now and will all the way until Satan is cast into the lake of fire. He checks our knowledge of the word of God. He challenges God when he finds out we don't know the word. Then he challenges God's power. Then he challenges God's motives. And then he offers us the world. Yeah. Let's talk about for a few minutes here his attacks against our humanity. Not talking about our body here. Okay. For a child of God, Satan cannot come against our physical beings unless one of two things happen. Either God gives him permission to do something for a season for the purposes of God in and through our lives or we fear what he puts in our brain and receive that and then act on it, which gives him permission to make us sick. Oh, yeah. Oh, brother, right, this is too much to keep in my mind. That's why this is a walk with God. I don't have to keep all this in my mind. I just, and I don't pray to be sensitive to the devil. And I don't pray to be sensitive to know the devil's voice. I pray to be sensitive to God, to have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, and to know his voice. Because if I know his voice, I'll know that every other voice is not his voice. And it doesn't matter what the source of those voices are. If I know God's voice, and I know the voice or the thoughts I'm having are not God's speaking, God speaking to me, the Lord Jesus Christ by his spirit speaking to me, then I'm not going to listen to it. It's not hard. It's really simple. No matter, even if we know all of this, it's just something you know. It's something you hide in your heart. But it's not what you live by every day. You live by relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. You live by your fellowship with him. You live by making sure that nothing gets between you and him. Any unrepented sin, any unforgiven offense or any disobedience of what he says for us to do. And living by his will. And if we do that, which all are very simple things, if we just let his grace give us the ability to do that, and we cooperate with that as our priority, and the number one priority of our day is not our family, it's not our job, it's not our church, it's not our money, it's not our vacation, it's not our leisure time. The number one priority of our day is relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's the only protection you got. I walk with him. He walks with me. He communicates with me. I'm, I'm communicating with him. I have his peace. I'm following his peace. I'm listening for his voice since trying to be sensitive to the moving of his spirit. And I'm following my peace. And if Satan tries to attack, the Lord will make it known and I can pass the test. If I'm in communication with him, if I'm not in fellowship with him, then I'm going to be ignorant of Satan's attack. And by the time I realize it's an attack of Satan, I'm going to be losing really bad or maybe even already a prisoner of war. So what about Satan's attack against our person? One of his first methods of attack is 
fear. And the number one thing that most people fear is dying. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he, Jesus, also himself likewise took part of the same. Why? That, for this cause, for this purpose, through death, because he became flesh and, and allowed that flesh, the life of that flesh to be taken, that through death, by submitting to death, he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. I've been promised eternal life. Every day I live here, it's Christ. The day I'm out of here, it's gain. Period. End of story. No bondage there. You can't threaten me with heaven. I'm here as long as he wants me here. When he's done with me, I'm out of here. And I've said it and I mean every word of it. This is not a grandstand play. This is me. This is my will talking. When I cross the finish line, don't be the person that prays me back here because of your own hurt or loss or whatever. When I'm done, I'm done. I'm out of here. That's the whole purpose is to cross that finish line saved. And when the Lord says, I've fought a good fight, I've kept the faith, I'm done, and he takes my spirit out of my body, leave it alone. Let him give you comfort and whatever. Leave me alone on the other side. Spent a lifetime getting there and a lot of hard lessons learned to try to understand how to walk with God and be yielded finally to give in all my will to God so that I can walk every day like that. First John chapter 4, verse 16. Well, First John 3 and 8 says the reason Christ was manifested was to destroy the works of the devil. The words destroy there does not mean to eliminate him. The word destroy there is the Greek word translated loose in Matthew 16, 19. To loose us from the effects of the works of the devil in our lives. That's why Christ was manifested. So he died in our place to show us that if we are in him, we have no reason to fear death. Therefore, we don't have no reason to be in bondage to fear. But in 1 John 4, chapter, chapter 4, verse 16, it says... And we have known and believed the love that the Father hath to us. God is love. He that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God and God in him. Herein is our love made perfect. The word perfect there means complete, mature, fruitful. It doesn't mean flawless. That's what the word perfect means today. That's not what the word perfect meant when it was translated that Greek word in 1611. Why? When our love comes to maturity... We can have boldness, and the Greek word there is confidence in the day of judgment, which is the Greek word, English equivalent letters, K-R-I-S-I-S, from which we get the English word crisis. Because as he is, so are we in this world. And even if we walk perfect and upright in all our ways like Job, God is going to allow things to happen to us that are crises. Why? So we can have experience in being tested and we can see whether we're passing or failing that 
test of crisis. Because one day, we're going to face the ultimate crisis or judgment. And do you want to face that judgment with untested faith? With untried faith? Peter said, the trial of our faith is more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried by fire. And we're going to complain and gripe and grumble against God? If I'm walking with God, that's not going to guarantee me no problems. I can't pay some kind of insurance policy of religious commitment that's going to guarantee God's not going to let bad stuff happen in my life because he has a purpose for the things he allows. It works good. It works good for his kingdom. It works good for his purpose. And if I love him and I'm devoted to his purpose, it works good for me. And some of those things are very hurtful. I mean, you lose seven sons and three daughters in one accident. Now, other than the one time Job is, Job's wife is mentioned, she's not mentioned again. <laughs> I don't know how old those seven sons and three daughters were, but they weren't little kids. And then when it was all over with, he had seven more sons and three more daughters. Was it by the same woman? <laughs> how old was she? That she had this pause. Apparently there was some kind of gap between the seven, those ten kids being born and the time they all died. And then when this trial was all over with and God started giving Job the second ten because he blessed him double because those ten kids had a soul and those souls didn't go away because they died. So when God gave Job double everything, he could only give him ten more kids, not twenty because that made him twenty. So do you want to face the judgment without having tested faith? Not me. Not me. I'm not going to complain about what he lets come into my life. I just want to be sensitive to him, to his voice, and to his His spirit, and to his peace, so that I recognize the test as quickly as possible, so that I can pass that test. And so... The next verse says, I'm going to start with verse 16 again and read down through that. And we have known and believed, known experiential. It's experiential knowledge, not intellectual knowledge. We have known experientially and love, which is to trust and rely upon the love of God, the love that God hath to us. God is love. He that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God and God in him. Herein is our love made complete, perfect, mature, that we may have boldness or confidence in the day of judgment or any crisis, because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love. Now, he's obviously talking about fear other than fearing God, which is clean, and the fear of the Lord brings wisdom and knowledge, and by the fear of the Lord we depart from evil. So he's never going to give us deliverance from the fear of God. Now, that fear will be overshadowed by our love as we mature in God. But that fear of God, that reverence for God and fear of God is never going anywhere. If you end up making it to heaven, it will have never gone anywhere. There is no fear in love. But perfect love casteth out fear because fear hath torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. And you hear me right now. Or better yet, hear the voice of the Lord right now. The whole thing with fear. The reason Satan wants you to fear 
is because the moment you fear, you are demonstrating a lack of faith and trust and confidence in the love of God for you. And he gets great glory and glee out of one of the children of God demonstrating they don't trust God's love for them. Okay, let's talk about the next thing he uses to attack us with. So, the antidote to fear is love and confidence in the love of God. So, what about condemnation? Romans 8, verse 33, Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? There you have it. The whole purpose of condemnation, accusation and condemnation, is for the purpose of causing us to doubt God loves us and that he has forgiven us. And once we can't receive the love of God, unearned and undeserved, he can cause us to doubt the love of God, which separates us from God. Because it's the love of God that brings us to God. It's the love of God that keeps us connected to God. And it's the love of God that's going to save us. That's why... If the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the sinner and the ungodly appear? And if Satan, through accusation and condemnation, not causing us to doubt God, but to doubt ourselves in God. So with fear, he's trying to get us to doubt God's love for us. But with condemnation... He's trying to get us to doubt that the love of God makes us worthy enough in God, not by our worthiness, but by God's love for us, that we would be able to let him forgive us no matter what our mistakes are, past, present, or future. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ, shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword. As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Problem. There's two things not in that list. I'm not in that list, and my past is not in that list. And accusing me and condemning me has to do with my past. And if he can condemn me, I will remove myself from the love of God because I will not feel worthy or deserving of what he's done for me. And so I won't let him forgive me. And so the accusation and condemnations will be true in the sense that I'm not living in the, the the forgiveness and the blood the work of the blood of Jesus and the work of the grace and mercy of God and the covering of righteousness. That's why Paul said, Romans eight one, there is therefore now no condemnation to them that are which are in Christ Jesus, which walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. And the only way you and I 
can have no condemnation in our lives is that we walk in the Spirit, and we obey the Spirit, and we're governed by the Spirit of God, and we listen to the voice of the Spirit. We're led by the Spirit, governed by the Spirit, led by the Spirit, live in the Spirit, Jesus' name. And finally, his attack against our person is the most appealing one. Because what is it? It's iniquity. And listen to this, Matthew 24, verse 9. Then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted and shall kill you, and you shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. And then shall many be offended and shall betray one another and shall hate one another. And many false prophets shall arise and shall deceive many. And he doesn't mention one time people there backsliding. But what about the next verse? And because iniquity shall abound, because the spirit of iniquity has been already at work in the world for thousands of years, and it's only increasing in his effectiveness. Because iniquity shall abound, the love of many, the love of God of many, shall wax or grow gradually cold. But he that shall endure to the end, the same shall be saved. So he didn't talk about anybody backsliding because they were being afflicted and, and, and delivered up and to be afflicted and killed and it and nobody backslid because they were hated of all men for name, namesake, and 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 they nobody was backslid backslid because they were betrayed or because of some false prophet. They just backslid because of iniquity. And what is iniquity? Ezekiel twenty eight fifteen, speaking of the anointed cherub that covereth, thou was perfect in all thy ways until iniquity was found within thee. Iniquity. What is iniquity? Iniquity can't be wickedness because wickedness could not attend in heaven. Abide in heaven, it can't be strictly lawlessness because there was only one law in heaven and one uh, will in heaven. So iniquity has to be deciding to do my own will and not God's will. Living by my will, my choice, running my own life rather than God's. And Satan is going to encourage you in that like the best friend you've ever had. Nobody's going to believe in your ability to do your own will more than the devil does. He wants you to do your will. Yeah. But the moment you begin to live that way, he's either going to condemn because you haven't totally sold out, or once you've totally sold out to doing his will, he just gives you that delusion that says you're mine. You're not on a hook or a stringer, and I haven't done a lot of fish fishing, but you catch a fish, put them on a stringer, and keep, leave them in the water so they stay alive. No, 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 no. No, they can get off that stringer technically. But when you're in the boat in the icebox, you're not coming out of that and getting back into your life again. Delusion. You're in his boat. You're not just in his boat. You are in his icebox. And it's over with. And so, as I've taught many times, Matthew 7, 21 through 23, not everyone that says unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father, which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? In thy name cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works. And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. I never had, according to the Greek, I never had an approved relationship with you. 
a relationship with you that I approved of. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Paul said in 2 Timothy 2.19, Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal, the Lord knoweth them that are his. Hello? And let everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. And David, quoting Psalms 32 and 1, says, in Romans 4, verse 6, even as David also describeth the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works, saying, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. And then quoting Jesus, I can of my own self do nothing. As I hear, I judge. My judgment is just because I seek not mine own will, but the will of the Father which hath sent me. And then John 4.34, Jesus saith unto them, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. Now, if I am a Christian and I am a follower of Christ and I have been baptized into Christ and Christ has been baptized into me by his spirit, then his priorities are my priorities. His resolve is my resolve. His purpose is my purpose. And so I just read to it, read it to you, John 5.30, John 4.34, among many verses that reveal this. Praise God. Now, let's talk about for a few minutes. I'm winding down here. Uh, I'm not going to go into this very much. But his attacks against our ministries and this is these attacks against our ministries are allowed by God. I'm reading to you 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7. Unless I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. The word give there means to have ownership of something or control over something, and you give it to them of out of goodwill. It's the word didomei always speaks of goodwill or good purpose from my understanding of it. So who gave it? God gave permission for Satan to send a messenger of his that would be like a thorn in Paul's flesh that you can't get rid of. And though it does, it's not cancer and all that stuff. It is, it's the always there and always irritating and always brings some kind of pain. And Paul besought the Lord three times to be delivered from this. And God said, no, no, no. And the Lord said, verse 9, and he said unto me, my grace is sufficient or enough for thee. You don't need anything more than my grace. You don't need deliverance. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities for this purpose, for this cause, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Paul says then, therefore I take pleasure in. And the Greek word there is means in its most literal sense, I have a choice and I choose because I prefer in my choice. So I prefer, I'm going to read that like that. You can look it up. Look at the, both the word and the root words of it. You'll see what, what this is saying. Therefore, I take pleasure or I prefer inf- infirmities. That's all of my personal weaknesses. Not just physical weaknesses, but all of my weaknesses. 
All those things that I have to acknowledge that I can't do. You mean like John 15, 5, without him I can do nothing? Reproaches. Reproaches are persecutions, but they come from people we know. You can't be shamed by somebody that their opinion doesn't matter. The word reproach here is a synonym of being shamed. And you can't be shamed by people unless their opinion matters. So reproaches are what people that you know and care about do to you. In necessities, that means you have needs and God chooses not to supply them. But God said, Paul said that God would supply all of our needs according to his riches glory. No, he didn't. He did not say he would supply all of our needs according to his riches and glory. Read it. Philippians 4.19. My God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory. And what is it we need? Luke, read Luke, the last part of Luke chapter 10 and you'll see what we need. Mary has chosen that good part because one thing is needful. And the Greek is of one there is need. She's chosen that good portion or share that's hers and nobody's going to take it away. And persecutions, that's when you're mistreated by people you don't know and that their opinions might don't necessarily matter. And the fact that they can tell it doesn't matter amps it up where they actually may go beyond words to physical persecution. And then distresses, and the Greek word there is pressures or situations and circumstances that put some kind of pressure on you where you have to decide whether or not you're going to keep peace on the inside or let the pressure come in where you try to take over and fix stuff yourself. And Paul said, I take pleasure in infirmities, reproaches, necessities, persecutions, distresses for Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then I'm long, wrong, strong. These are the things that God gives permission to the adversary to do to us against our ministries so that we don't ever forget that it's not us, but it's God doing these things, and we never take his glory. And so we're not trying to be strong so we can accomplish for God. He's trying to make us aware of our weaknesses so he can use us and we won't be tempted to take his the credit or the glory. And then finally, I'm just going to hit the high points here. Here are Satan's attack against the body of Christ. And I want you to note as we go through every one of these, every one of these things starts as words. Every one of them starts as words. And those words starts as thoughts. And those, those thoughts come from the adversary. Because it's the only way he can defeat the body of Christ. He has no other weapon against the body of Christ but words he puts in the minds of people who are a part of the church. And then they believe those words and they begin to speak those words. And when they begin to speak the words, depending on what the words are about, what the subject is, those words cause disunity or those words cause contention or those words cause strife. And according to Thayer's, that's electioneering for office. Those words cause, cause stubbornness, rebellion. Those words cause deception. And those words blind and bind through traditions of men. No matter who the source of them is. Those are all Things that Satan does to attack the church because he has no power against the church except what we give him. 
And it all starts with words he puts in our minds as thoughts that we don't discern the source of them because they're telling us what we want to hear. Because every one of those thoughts in every one of these things, just this is only a, a few of them, disunity, contention, strife, rebellion, carnality, deception, tradition, all of these things do such damage to the church because ultimately they're all about me. Me, myself, and I. And so again, how does Satan deceive people? By telling them what they want to hear. So we take, we cause disunity because we want our part. We cause contention because we, we want to be heard. We, we, we cause contention because we got ambition and we want to get elected. Forget the will of God. It's our will to have an office and a title. And then we cause rebellion because we don't like what we've been told by the authority. And then we get carnal because we like what our flesh wants to do and not the dying out to self that God's called us to. And we, we, we get, we are deceived because deception flatters us. And then finally we like tradition because we can be in control when our Christianity is ruled or guided by tradition. And flesh can do tradition all day long. You don't have to die out to yourself. don't have to die out to flesh. You don't have to die out to your will. And you can live perfectly by the traditions of men that we call religion. So as I close today, and this is the longest of all the, I believe, the longest of all the briefings and directives. And I pray that you have enough hunger that you want to listen to this whole thing, no matter how distressing it may need be to hear all this, but I'm going to say to you again, if you're overwhelmed by all of this, if you're distressed by all of this, you don't need to look at the devil. You look at yourself. You need to ask yourself some questions. How much do I know Jesus? How much have I given myself to Jesus? How much of my will have I surrendered? And how much of the will of God am I giving? And how much am I submitted to God's governance and leading in my life? And how much of my priorities are his priorities and my priorities? Because each one of these things are positive things I can do, which then become my protection from all of that. And by walking with him and being sensitive to him, I can be, he will always let me know if I'm in tune with him, that the voice I'm hearing is not him because I know his voice. If I know him, I know his voice. And when I hear or have a thought that's not his voice, I will know whose it is not his, and then I won't obey it. I won't obey it. Amen. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, I pray the spirit of the fear of the Lord upon every one of us. I bind the spirit of the fear of Satan and command it to loose everyone hearing this message. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, be free from fear of Satan. I loose the love of God into your life that you might know by experience the love of God and you might trust the love of God no matter what the crisis is and that you might draw close to the Lord and that you might be willing to know him and grow in your knowledge of him not only through the power of his resurrection but through the fellowship of his daily sufferings that whatever they are and whatever degree they are that he trusts you with 
as you and I grow in Jesus' name, that you will have the grace and the confidence in God to go through those things and to come out on the other side of them, having grown in grace and grown in the knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, so that we can receive the victory. Thanks be unto God which which giveth us the victory. And we are more than conquerors in, by, and through him who loved us. So if you will just hunger for him and thirst for him and for his will and for his kingdom and get to know him and draw close to him and learn his voice, then everything I've taught today is secondary knowledge because you only need it when God brings it back to you and helps you remember, that's not me, this is the adversary. If it's something I allowed because of my fear, I believe what he said, and I fear, then I can repent, and God will deliver me. Or if it's something he has allowed for my growth, for my testing, he will give me the grace to go through it, and I can trust him, and I won't pray it off of me, because I will realize that God has sent it for my, or allowed it to come my way for my good, for the good of his plan, his purpose, his kingdom, In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, God bless you. One last word. I have overlooked the fact that the call to war syllabus is in Spanish. And you are welcome to go on myapw.com and download the Spanish call to war syllabus for free. You're welcome to go to apostoliciron.com under downloads and download the uh, Call to War Syllabus for free. God bless you. Thank you for your patience with me. I know this is very long today, relatively speaking for others, not long for me, but long for others. <laughs> and uh, I thank you for staying with it. And if you didn't finish it, I hope you come back and finish it, not for my sake, but for your sake. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, God bless you. I love you and he loves you. Amen.